majesty of what is being described to us here by trying to exhaust you know, every individual piece of jewelry and things like that. That's not why those details are here. Just try to take it all in. This will help us understand John's point in being given the vision and his purpose for describing it to us to overwhelm us with the beauty of God's creativity and his power and his design. This vision wasn't given so that we could decipher the specific dimensions or overanalyze what each part might mean. We are meant to be blown away by the overall majesty of the description of this city. The New Jerusalem is the church of Jesus Christ made perfectly whole in all its God-given glory and the eternal home He has prepared for all those He calls His children. Let me pray and we'll begin. Our Father, I ask tonight that You would open and enlarge our hearts to receive Your Word here. That God, as You fix the eyes of our hearts on the future that is certain because You are the One who has declared it to be so, I pray, God, that we would be overwhelmed tonight by the beauty, the majesty of this image, Lord. And I pray that what You intended by inspiring these words to be written and showing John this vision is what would occur in us for Your name's sake and for our faith. So please help me preach to that end. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me make just a few observations here before we head into the text proper. Just I hope to kind of set up what we're seeing here. The description of the New Jerusalem that's here from 21.9 really to 22.5, although we'll stop at the end of 21 tonight, is based in large part, significantly large part, on Ezekiel's vision of a temple and the city way back in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. Revelation 21 reveals that the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision of this latter-day temple is actually found here in the New Jerusalem that will be in the new heavens and the new earth. I know that some believe Ezekiel's vision of the temple will be fulfilled in a literal, physical, rebuilt structure that will be completed um, either during the tribulation period or, or in the millennial reign of Jesus if it's pushed out into the future. But the vision given to Ezekiel, as we'll see, is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, in particular in this new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to earth rather than being built from the earth up at the time of Jesus' return. That's number one. Secondly, um, there is a direct contrast between the vision of the great prostitute that we read about back in chapter 17 and the bride described for us here in chapter 21. Notice how... Uh, Notice how each one of these is very deliberately introduced. Uh, Let me read from chapter 17, verses 1 and 3. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Verse 3, he says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads And ten horns. And then you see here in verses 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven 
from God. So John is being shown here by contrast that the people of God are pictured as this faithful bride, the holy and pure wife of Jesus, the exact opposite of this unholy and idolatrous people of the unbelieving world back in Revelation 17. This is the picture of the entire world as it stands spiritually in every age. What we saw back in 17. One woman is a harlot, an unfaithful woman who rebels against God. The other is pictured very deliberately as a beautiful, faithful wife who adores her husband, lives in perfect intimacy with her bridegroom. All right, Those are two contrasting images here. Thirdly, we need to ask as we walk into this text, are we looking at a literal city or a symbolic one? I believe this is a symbolic picture of something very real. Notice, beloved, how the bride of the Lamb in verses 2 and 10 is equated directly with the detailed layout of the city in 21.11 to 22.5. When John once again is told he'll see the bride, he's immediately taken and shown the holy city Jerusalem, the dimensions of the city in verses 16 and 17 point us to this symbolic way of understanding this text of a symbolic interpretation. So let's look and see now. Pick it up again in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So just as the the similarities here between John and Ezekiel are very deliberate, just as Ezekiel was, in, in other words, God is trying to tell us this is the fulfillment of that. Just as Ezekiel was in the spirit, quoting there, when he was given his vision of the temple in Ezekiel 2, 2, 3, 12, 3, 14, 3, 24, 11, 1, 43, 5, all those verses in Ezekiel, just as he was in the Spirit when he was given the vision of the temple there, John's prophetic experience is introduced in the exact same way. The wording is almost exactly the same. By doing this, the angel is showing us that this is the prophetic fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision of the future temple in chapters 40 to 48 of his book back in Ezekiel. John is told very clearly That this holy city, the new Jerusalem, is a beautiful picture of the people of God. Back in verse 2, John saw the city coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Then here again in verses 9 and 10, he's told he'll be shown the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he's carried away in the Spirit to see the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The city symbolizes the saints. Ezekiel, what Ezekiel saw, he didn't fully understand John is given the clearer picture. We don't simply live in the city. We are the holy city. It's people. The city is the church, the bride of Christ, adorned in the beauty that her husband gave to her. It looks so grand, so perfect, so massive, so beautiful, so pure and bright, and all these things because the church has been perfected in Jesus Christ. Remember this picture of the perfected and beautified church when you are tempted, as I am often, to focus on all our warts and imperfections as the church here. This is what the plan is. This is what it's going to look like. This is what we will be there, all of us, adorned with every precious jewel imaginable and dressed 
in the glory of God. So don't bail on the church, right? Of course, it's messy. Right now, it's here. But God is doing His sanctifying work. Here's the city. Pick it up in verse 11. Having the glory of God. That's interesting. The city has that. Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles, of the Lamb. That's very interesting. What are the apostles the foundation of in the New Testament? The church. The church. Are you starting to see this come together here? Verse 15, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian. The seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So if we're trying to take this in, and and, and the picture of the city form in our head, it's extremely difficult to get a sense of what this looks like. And we'll try to break this down. In verse 11, this city has the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the physical temple was where God's glory resided on the earth before Jesus came. But in the new creation, God's presence, God's glory will abide in and with His people. We are holy. We are the city in which God dwells. That's what Ephesians tells us God is building with the people in the church. A structure made of holy people. And so we have His glory in us now, as Jesus said we did in John 17, 22, because we have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And this is what the Spirit does. The term, the name Holy Spirit is telling us what the Spirit of God is doing in us. It's not a redundant title. If it's the Spirit of God, you don't need to say Holy Spirit. He's telling us what that Spirit is doing. He's holying us. Which isn't a word, but you get the idea. This glory, however, will be consummated. What we can't see now in the new heaven and the new earth, it will be visible that in us resides the glory of God in the new Jerusalem. Back in chapter 4, verse 3, Jasper was used to describe the appearance of God's being. Dennis Johnson in his book, The Triumph of the Lamb, writes that Jasper is an opaque quartz mineral and occurs in various colors, commonly red, brown, green, and yellow, Rarely blue and black and seldom white. It's a beautiful stone. The city had a great high wall in verse 12, meaning the city is completely secure. That's why the wall is so grand. That's the image it's meant to convey. Our fellowship with God there 
is under no threat whatsoever. Nothing evil or bad or wrong or foul can get into this city. No enemy can breach the wall. No one can assault us spiritually or physically ever again. First of all, of course, because by this time, all evil has been judged and put down. So it's not there anyway. But John is also making a point to those in the ancient world using this image of a high wall protecting a city. There will be no intruders there. Eternal life has no such thing. In verses 12 and 13, the wall had 12 gates with 12 angels to guard each one. On these gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are on the gates of the city. And in verse 14, the wall has 12 foundation stones on which are written the names of the 12 apostles. We saw the number 24, which comprises the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles earlier in Revelation 4.4. 24 has a very great significance in Scripture. David, King David, organized the tabernacle servants into 24 orders of priests. In 1 Chronicles 24.3-19, 24 Levitical gatekeepers. In 1 Chronicles 26.17-19, and then 24 orders of Levites. In 1 Chronicles 25, 6-31. So 24 is this picture of God's people of where His presence dwells as a perfect whole. G.K. Beale, by way of Sam Storms, points out that the integration of the apostles together with the 12 tribes of Israel as part of the city temple structure prophesied in Ezekiel 40-48 to confirms further that the multiracial Christian church will be the redeemed group who, together with Christ, will fulfill Ezekiel's prophecy of the future temple and the city. This beautiful multiracial bride is where time is going. The emphasis in the text is on one people of God in one city. Do we see this? Made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles who equally inherit the promises since they all are in Christ together. The new Jerusalem is a symbol of the unity of God's people made whole from every age. Both believing Israel and the church together as one covenant people. No more distinctions. Holy, pure, secure. It's like that now spiritually, but we generally don't recognize this or practice this. And because of all this, the city is perfectly measured. Which is the point, again, of giving us measurements. Not because we're seeing a literal city that you use rulers and you know tape measures and all this to measure. It's that everything is perfect and whole. The angel who measures the city temple in verse 15 is also an image drawn from Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. The measuring itself is a way of describing not only how secure, but how holy and perfect the people inside of it are. G.K. Beale recalls how the earthly Jerusalem's walls, when he's talking about this, were broken through by God's enemies, right? But this city, this city's walls guarantee the eternal protection and safety of God's people. In the perfect and final temple, God's people are protected in every way, spiritually and physically. Not only is the city laid out as a square in verse 16 with its length and width being equal, it is also a cube. As we read it, that's how it's pictured. Each side is 12,000 stadia. It's so massive, right? A stadium, one of these, was 607 feet. So 12,000 stadia is equal to about 1,500 miles. This thing is massive. As 
Philip's writes, a city this size would cover the entire Mediterranean world from Jerusalem to Spain. That's how big of a picture, if you wanted a sense of how big this is that we're getting here. If you remember, the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle was also a perfect cube in 1 Kings 6.20. One preacher says that John is telling us the new Jerusalem is itself the Holy of Holies of God's abiding presence for eternity. Ultimately, then, the eternal Holy of Holies is not a place. It's a people in whom God dwells and manifests His glory. In verse 17, the wall of the city is 144 cubits. That's 72 yards, 216 feet. Now, if you're thinking here, you already would be asking, now, wait a minute, that's not nearly big enough. It's not even close to being big enough to protect this city. So obviously the number is symbolic. Since the 12 tribes of Israel are multiplied by the 12 apostles of the church to equal 144. That's why we have 144 cubits pointing to the foundational unity of all God's people. This also helps us see how the description here is symbolic. Like I said, since a 216 feet wall would be horribly out of proportion to protect the city that is 1,500 miles wide. Right. So again, the, the point is not this is a literal city. These are images of spiritual realities. And even if this points one way that that people try to get around that and say, no, it is a literal city. It, it's talking about its thickness, not its height. Fair enough. Even if this points to the wall's thickness and not its height, 216 feet is still a tiny fraction of the width needed for the base of a wall that surrounds a city that's basically 8 million feet high. Okay? Don't get too caught up in the numbers. That's not the glory of Revelation. They point to realities. They are not the realities themselves. Again, it doesn't make the Bible less literal or true. It it means what it means, right? That's what God inspired. And notice how John even reminds us of that we're looking at a symbol here in verse 17. Because again, if you're trying to get a literal physical picture of the city, it's extremely confusing. It doesn't break down. It doesn't make sense. So John adds that the vision is to be understood According to its angelic or heavenly meaning in verse 17, not a literal one, right? He tells us that. He tips his cap to us or hat. I never know how that phrase goes. If you're trying to show somebody something, you tip your hat or your cap. Please, somebody tell me. Help me. You tip your... I don't know. Never mind. Never mind. I know that's in there somewhere. (laughs) Revelation 13.8 told us that the the number of the beast, 666 is the number of a man. In 21.7, we're told that the angel who showed John the New Jerusalem measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So it's not, again, it's not literal, but it's real. He's trying to capture what he's seeing. Notice the stark contrast between 666, the number of the beast, and 144 as the number or measure of an angel. The numerical value of the number 666 is the value of the Greek word beast, therion, in Hebrew letters, which means 144 as the numerical value of the Greek word angel, angelos, in Hebrew letters. In verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper, and the city itself was pure gold, like clear glass. Again, 
if we're being strictly literal here, how could gold ever look like glass? Because no matter how purely gold is refined, it is always going to be opaque, where glass is transparent. If we're in a literal city, this would be a problem, but we aren't meant to think that way here. And let me stop for a minute and talk about that for a second. Why, why is it important to make these distinctions? Because the, the beauty we're being given here is, is greater than a physical structure. Those are the kinds of things God puts into Scripture to lift up our hearts, carry us away like He carried John away, if you will, to realize that we can't really understand what's coming. Right? I mean, we, we could make a mock-up of this, but it, and, and the mock-up, it, it's be like, it's going to look exactly like this, only this isn't to scale. It's way more than that. That's, that's the point. We're not lessening the meaning of the text when we talk about how prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature is symbolic. We're, we're just trying to scratch the surface of something that we can't measure with yardsticks. Right? It's so much grander than this. John is trying to describe what he's seeing, but he's doing it in a way that stretches our imaginations as we ponder the greatness, the majesty of God in this city. The foundation stones of the city wall are described in verses 19 through 21. And the list of 12 jewels is very similar to and probably based on the list in Exodus 28, 17 to 20 and Exodus 39, 8 to 14 that describe the stones of the high priest's breastplate. Beloved. Make a note of the importance of this. The jewels which in the Old Testament represented the twelve tribes of Israel on the heart of the high priest are here applied not to the gates of the city or the twelve tribes, but to the foundation stones. That is, the apostles of the church. We cannot forget that Peter described the church of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2.5 as living stones that are being built up together as a spiritual household for God. So you see how apocalyptic literature works. It's not an actual house. It's that when we look at a house, God is saying it will be something like that, just so you have an image in your head, but it's way better than just a big house, despite Audio Adrenaline's big hit in the late 90s. None of you would know. I don't know why I brought that up. Nobody really remembers that song. But... um. The point of these jewels being here is not really to convey wealth, right? We know that God has, I mean, can we even say He has limitless wealth? It, it, it goes without saying. But it's, it, the point of these rare jewels here is not really to convey wealth. It's, 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 it's meant to show us the beauty and splendor and holiness of God's character now revealed in His people is unsurpassed. Unsurpassed. There will come a day when that's what we are. When we are shown to be what we are when God sees us in Christ. Again, notice the power of the symbolism here when we read in verse 21 that each gate is a single pearl. Just, again, think about that. How could a single pearl be big enough to constitute a gate proportional to a wall that is 216 feet high. How big of an oyster would that pearl have to come from? Now, and, and so, again, if the argument here would be, well, Tony, duh, God is able to produce giant pearls, which he certainly can. But then realize if, if that's your argument so that you can keep it literal, you, you just 
said it isn't literal. Right? You understand that we all do this. That argument, you'd have to completely abandon the idea that your interpretation is strictly literal if you say, well, God makes giant pearls, because that's not what the text says, right? And the words of the street of the city in verse 21 only occur elsewhere in Revelation in chapter 11, verse 8. That's up to this point, we've not seen the street of the city, but in 11.8, it was where the bodies of God's prophetic witnesses were laid while the world held them in contempt. Here, that phrase is repeated to show that what was formerly their shame has been replaced by glory. Look now at verse 22 here. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. He's beginning to explain it as it is, isn't he? John saw no physical temple. He didn't see a literal building like they had during the Old Testament era. There most certainly is a temple, though, in the new heavens and the new earth, right? But it's God and the Lamb. They are the abiding place of the people. It's an odd image, yes, to say that God and the Lamb are the temple, but we've already seen how the new Jerusalem is identified with the bride of Christ. The images here are beautiful, and in some ways they're too complex for our physical mind. So it's amazing how the text informs our method of interpreting and understanding prophetic Scripture. Okay, this, this is so important. I hope that you're willing to hear this. John applies the prophecy of Ezekiel 40 to 48 in which a physical temple is front and center, no question. He applies that and says that's fulfilled in a future new Jerusalem in which there's actually no physical temple at all. That's how we have to understand prophetic literature. It points to meaning. Verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Notice it it doesn't say there won't literally be a sun or a moon in the new heavens. It's certainly possible that there will be. It's very plausible that it will be. But more than likely, this means that God's glory has a brightness of which the sun and moon and stars were only whispering about. Right? It's, 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 the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Doesn't mean they're not there. Why is there no need for it? Because God is the light. Right? God is the light. Like a candle. It's like if you, you take a candle that lights up in a, in a dark room, if you light a candle in a dark room, it, it kind of shines light into the whole room. If you take that same candle out into the bright sunlight and light it, it's, you can't see any light that it's emitting. It's, it's emitting. There may still be sun and moon and stars there, but there won't any longer be, they won't any longer be the source of light, right? God's light is outshining every light and it, it always is. It always is. It's just now we can't see it that way, but we will. We will. It's also true that the light in the New Jerusalem is revelatory. It reveals. It's not just brightness. It shows us that our minds and hearts will be enlightened to see and celebrate the glory of God like never before. Things we can only partially grasp now, if that, will be crystal clear to us there. Beloved, there will be no darkness of any kind in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a dream place for a child, isn't it? No darkness, nothing scary, no monsters, 
No wonder you need the faith of a child to believe. Only righteousness dwells there. In Exodus 33, Moses, if you remember, asked to see God's glory. And God told him, no, you'll, you'll die. So let me hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and you can basically look at my back, even though God is not a, a you know, a person like this. In Christ, of course, he is, but now that Christ has come, however, and made us clean and holy to stand boldly in the presence of Almighty God, that's how holy he makes us. We will be immersed, surrounded, inundated with the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. To be fully forgiven, justified, redeemed, washed, and sanctified in our resurrected bodies will mean there are no more barriers between us and the unmitigated glory of Almighty God. It's just what we'll dwell in. That's Jesus for us. That's what He does. He fulfills Isaiah 60, 19-20 for His people. Do you remember this verse? The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Verse 24 here. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you can hear the echo again of Isaiah there. Isaiah 60, 10-11 to be exact. John, that text speaks about the pilgrimage of the nations to latter-day Jerusalem. They'll go up, right? John is interpreting Isaiah the pilgrimage of the nations to latter-day Jerusalem in Isaiah's prophecy as being fulfilled here in the new Jerusalem of the future. The eternal state on the new earth. That's when Isaiah is fulfilled. The nations and kings of the earth in verse 24 means that God got what He desired as He told us in 1 Timothy 2 that He desired kings and all kinds of people to be saved. Well, That's the case. The nations, the kings of the earth, mean that some of those who were once rebellious had in fact or will in fact repent and are redeemed from among the nations. Every kind of person, every culture, race, whatever you want to call it, of person will be there. All will submit to God and become one with all the redeemed from all the ages. That means that the promise from Revelation 5, 9, and 10 that Christ has redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will most certainly come true. There will be former kings there. Former rebels there. That's what we all were. And what are this glory and honor that the nations bring into this city? In verse 26, back in Isaiah, it seems like they're bringing wealth and material possessions. But here, as one preacher says, it's the praise and worship and service of the people themselves now that are being brought in to the city. uh, Why would I say that? That that's what the glory and honor are here. The the only other time we see that phrase, glory and honor, in Revelation is in chapter 4, verses 9 and 11, and chapter 5, verse 12. And there, 
The glory and honor refer specifically to the praise of God and the Lamb. That's what they're bringing in. Right? It's, it's going to be so much more grand than people bringing material possessions into the holy city. That was pointing to a reality. There's no night there in the second part of verse 25 because God's glorious presence will be constant. Where He is, there is no darkness. And one day, that's where we will be. Isn't See, that's amazing. Light and dark are not competing forces. Dark only happens where light isn't. Right? God is saying, where I am, where I dwell, there's no darkness there. How could there be? Nothing can or will dim the glory of God's brilliance. Just for a minute, skip down real quick to verse 5 of chapter 22. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. They won't need either one of those things. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. One last amazing thing about the new Jerusalem, God's people, ultimately in Revelation 21, is that there will be no sin there. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. In verse 27, no one there will ever do anything detestable or false there. For only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will dwell in that city. Only those redeemed by the blood and righteousness of Jesus will be there. Perfect, holy, sanctified. There we will live, beloved. And there we will enjoy our God forever in a city whose foundations are pure, unlimited grace. Knowing our names are written down in the Lamb's book of life, from our side is a matter of who Jesus is to us. Right? Everything that would prevent us from receiving the gift of Jesus is not worth the loss. Right? There's nothing that you lose by gaining Christ that is worth losing Christ. Jim Elliott probably said it best, right? Maybe you know that name. Maybe you've heard of the Ecuador Five that were killed. Is that, that in the 50s? Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian. Ah, oh, the other two guys. They were missionaries. Remember, they were speared to death. Jim Elliott wrote in his diary, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's just, it's just a beautiful... And, and remember in Hebrews 11 when it talks about how they were, Abraham endured because he was looking for a city, right? Whose buildings and foundations were God. This is what Abraham was looking for right here in Revelation 21. See the Bible pulling all this together? It doesn't exist here, right? The materials aren't here to build it either. Only God can bring this city down from above. A lasting city. Right? Whose builder and maker is God Himself. Right? That, that's what it is to be a believer in the world as it stands today. Looking for a city. Right? Where we'll never die. There the sainted millions never say goodbye. There we'll meet our Savior. I don't remember the rest of the words of the song. That's all I remember. But 
There's a city, beloved, where sorrow ends, where tears are no more, where evil is not only banished, but can't ever enter there ever again. Right now, it's where He is. He's bringing it down to us. When all is said and done, citizenship there is free for you and I. Cost Jesus his life, but God gave it back to him. All it requires for admission is our admission that Jesus is our only hope for a Savior. That's the faith that saves. We talk about real faith, genuine faith. What is that? That's defined by what its object is. Not the amount inside of the person. Genuine faith is faith that Jesus died for me and rose again for me. Full stop. Right? The new Jerusalem is the church of Jesus Christ made perfectly whole. In absolute resplendent God-given glory. And the eternal home for God that He has prepared for all those He calls His children. And trust me, you want to be in that number. So be there. Be there.